You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Latitude 70 degrees, 5 minutes north. Longitude 98 degrees, 23 minutes west. October 1847. Captain Crozier comes up on deck to find his ship under attack by celestial ghosts. Above him, above terror, shimmering folds of light lunge, but then quickly withdraw, like the colorful arms of aggressive but ultimately uncertain specters. Ectoplasmic skeletal fingers extend toward the ship, open, prepare to grasp, and pull back. The temperature is minus 50 degrees Fahrenheit and dropping fast. Because of the fog that came through earlier during the single hour of weak twilight now passing for their day, the foreshortened mass, the three top masts, top gallons, upper rigging, and highest spars have been removed and stored to cut down on the falling ice and to reduce the chance of the ship capsizing because of the weight of the ice on them. Stand now like rudely pruned and topless trees reflecting the aurora that dances from one dimly seen horizon to the other. As Crozier watches, the jagged ice fields beyond the ship turn blue, then bleed violet, then glow as green as the hills of his childhood in Northern Ireland. Almost a mile off the starboard bow, the gigantic floating ice mountain that hides Terror's sister ship Erebus from view seems for a brief false moment to radiate color from within, glowing from its own cold internal fires. Pulling up his collar and tilting his head back out of 40 years' habit of checking the status of mass and rigging, Crozier notices that the stars overhead burn cold and steady, but those near the horizon not only flicker but shift when stared at, moving in short spurts to the left, then to the right, then jiggling up and down. Crozier's seen this before, in the far south with Ross as well as in these waters on earlier expeditions. A scientist on that south polar trip, a man who spent the first winter in the ice there grinding and polishing lenses for his own telescope, had told Crozier that the perturbation of the stars was probably due to rapidly shifting refraction in the cold air, lying heavy but uneasy over the ice-covered seas and unseen frozen land masses. In other words, over new continents never before seen by the eyes of man, or at least, Crozier thinks, in this northern Arctic, by the eyes of white men. Dan Simmons is the Hugo Award-winning author of science fiction novels that include Hyperion, Ilium, and Olympos, the Joe Kurtz mystery novels including Hard Case, Hard Freeze, and Hard as Nails, horror novels that include Summer of Night, Children of the Night, and A Winter Haunting, and the historical novel The Crook Factory, and suspense novels that include Song of Kali and Darwin's Blade. His new historical horror novel is The Terror. Welcome to the program, Dan. Thank you, Rick. Dan, this is a really interesting historical novel, and it's based on an interesting historical tale. So why don't you set us up with the facts that were before you, before you even began the novel? Yeah, I became interested in this novel because I was reading about Antarctic exploration and came across a footnote about an Arctic expedition that disappeared, and I'd never heard of it. it turned out nobody I talked to had heard of it. It was the Sir John Franklin Expedition of 1845. Franklin and two of the most modern ships of the day, the HMS Erebus and Terror, and 126 men in the crew, set sail to force the Northwest Passage, connecting the Atlantic and Pacific north of Canada, of course. No one had done that before. There had been attempts for 25 years. They were sure Sir John Franklin would do it, and the ships were the most modern of their day. Actually, they were old ships, but they were 
had brand new steam engines. They were armor-plated. They were the cutting edge, literally, of ice-breaking technology. And the ships were last seen tied to an ice flow in, the, in Baffin Bay in August of 1845. And I mean last seen. They just disappeared with the men. And it was one of the largest mysteries of, on Earth at the time. For 30 years, it was the largest uh, sea and land search and rescue operation ever mounted on the planet. And they never found them. One of the things when you start writing a historical novel about this is you're going to do some research, and you have primary sources and secondary sources. And maybe tell us about how you went about finding out which where to look for what you needed to know. It was interesting, but I, I hesitate to call my reading research because it's really broad and sometimes deep reading. But I didn't go to England, didn't go to the Scott Research Center to look at all the primary documents. Some of them were available online, which is a big help these days. But you find one or two books, some of them very little known perhaps, maybe something published back in the 1880s. And you don't trust what's in those books, but they lead you to the next book and so forth. And pretty soon you reach that critical mass, sort of a saturated solution, where everything comes together and you realize there's a novel in here. So tell us a little bit about some of the characters who drove this. One of the things that I was wondering was you have a bunch of characters. How many of them are based on the actual people who are on the ship? Did you look at the ship's roles, names, and see who was on it? Yes, and this was a big decision for me because I have several villains, one intense villain, and uh, his name is Cornelius Hickey. And, but I created him whole cloth because there's simply no information about the real Hickey. He's on the muster. So at first I wrote it with a fictional name, but then I realized everyone I was dealing with, I'm essentially creating a fictional character. We know something about, obviously, some of the officers. Uh, Sir John Franklin had a history, and things have been written about him. My main protagonist, Captain Francis Crozier, is a fascinating character. Somebody who'd been passed over for top promotion for decades, even though he was the best explorer they had and the best sailor, but he was a drunk because he was bitter. He'd been passed over because he was born in Ireland, and he was a Presbyterian rather than C of E. And his biggest crime was that he came up through the ranks rather than was a gentleman, you know, assigned to be a midshipman and then a captain. He's a fascinating character, so I try to stay true to that, but I'm dealing with them all fictionally. So in the end, I decided to stay with the real names. They're all names that were on the muster, the roster of the two ships. One of the things I found interesting is that they decided to name these ships Erebus and in terror, it, it seems like, you know, maybe not the wisest decision to naming your boat almost like Satan's plaything. Well, they're great names, and they, they lent themselves to something fascinating to me. If you go down to Antarctica now, you see the two smoking volcanoes still right there on the coast, and they're Mount Erebus and Mount Terror, and they were named after these two ships because they are the ones who actually discovered these ships were part of the expedition in 1840 to 1843 that discovered the Antarctic continent. And my uh, protagonist, Captain Crozier, who was lost in this expedition up north, uh, had been second in command on that expiration as well. And his boss, Sir James Ross, got everything named after him down there. Nothing was named after Crozier. Did anything ever end up getting named after Crozier? Not a thing. Not a thing. Boy, that's a tragic tragedy, especially when you read the novel. Readers are just going to come away wanting to name something after the poor guy. Well, I should say, there is a Crozier point now on the island where he probably died, but I think that's a little solace to him. <laughs> One thing that is interesting about um, historical novels is the sense of hindsight that you can bring to it, because in a sense, you are, we're living in the science fiction future they couldn't even comprehend. And 
with with this, there's a lot of interesting technology. Tell us a little bit about the high tech that they brought to the into this. They're the ships themselves. I mentioned they were old ships, but they were reinforced in, in very modern ways with iron and new uses of wood and iron bracing on the inside. They were actually gunships. They were used for bombardment. And the Terror, uh, Crozier's ship, it was uh, bombarding Fort McHenry in the War of 1812. So the rocket's red glare in our Star-Spangled Banner probably came from HMS Terror. But they were uh, perfect for ice exploration because they had large lower decks for the men, lots of, lots of room for stores. Once all the guns and powder were taken out, of course, they were perfect. And also they didn't get crushed easily. They rode up on the ice. And they, they plated the outside with iron, as I said. They redesigned it so that it would rise up rather than be crushed. But the, uh, the high-tech included such things as a steam engine, which was brand new to the Royal Navy in 1845. And they used two railway engines, one with a mighty 25 horsepower and the other with 20 horsepower. And, uh, but beyond that, it was fairly sophisticated. They had a drive shaft they could pull back into the ship when it got too icy and so it wouldn't be damaged in the ice. But, of course, it, it did little uh, in the end. The men were frozen in for three winters. At least they had comfort. They had the first steam heat ever on any ex expedition ship. So they piped uh, hot water through the crew deck, the lower deck. And they also had uh, 3,000 volumes to read. They had great libraries. They had 1,000 volumes just to punch the wonderful magazine. Uh, they had uh, canned food, the first expedition ever to have canned food. Some have blamed that for their demise, saying it was lead poisoning or botulism, but I'm not, I don't believe that theory. I don't think that killed them. I think the canned food was good. And it was so comfortable, they had actually sort of a CD player. They, uh, they had a large mechanical disc player that played show tunes, uh, dance hall tunes for them. And they were the first expedition ever to have a camera. So they were well set. They should have been able to, been able to survive three to five years in the ice without much trouble. Well, part of the, their problem was the man who was leading the expedition, Sir John Franklin. And I, you say that a bit has read, been written about him. And he is introduced as the man who ate his own shoes. Yes, he didn't like that phrase too much. That went back to when he was a uh, young explorer and led... Uh, a team of British and uh, some local Canadians to, again, find the Northwest Passage, Passage, but that was 30 years earlier, and that was overland going north up from Can Canadian bases. And he hadn't planned too well. They were going to be gone about a year and a half, and he planned to have about six days' worth of food. And no one knew, uh, none of the British really knew how to hunt in that territory, especially when they got into the tundra. And so they ate their shoes fairly early on, and then they started looking at each other. This is a problem. He was also uh, a governor in New Zealand, was it? It was Tasmania, Tasmania. yes. Tasmania. Von Diemen's Land at the time. And uh, he, he wasn't very well liked, was he? No, but he wasn't well liked by some of the vested interests, some of the colonial warlords there, the British who ran the place the way they wanted. They were, it was a fiefdom. And uh, he was a good governor in the sense that he, I think he really wanted to help the natives as well as the Brits there which the vested interests, the colonial planters, didn't like. Also, his wife, his second wife, Sir John's wife, uh, Jane, Lady Franklin, is amazing. I could have written a novel about her. You, you can't read anything about her without seeing the word indomitable. She was an early feminist, and she outraged some of the colonial sensibilities in Tasmania. Now, when he went off on this expedition, he... He wasn't. He himself wasn't particularly well prepared, and, and his decisions didn't seem to be the best. Tell us a little bit about um, what you portray as some the tension between him and Captain Crozier. 
Well, this is one of those things where, as an author creating a fictional world, I have to make some assumptions. And since the facts of their demise are lost in the fogs of the Arctic, all we know is they were frozen in and weren't able to escape. We do know from a note that he, he Lord uh, Sir John, died in 1847, probably two years before the other men, but we don't know how. But it seems to be Sir John's mistakes that doomed them all. He continued to sail south in the thicker and thicker ice and was simply shut off. He could have gotten closer to the coast. He could have sought a place... Uh, uh, in the lee of some of the islands they'd passed so they could have wintered better, but he followed orders literally. The planning for the expedition was, uh, let's say, negligent. They were too confident. They were an imperial power. They'd, de they'd defeated every foe. They commanded the seas. They were at the height of their technological glory. You know, this England was very similar to the United States today. They had absolute confidence to the point that they made little plans even for rescue. But Sir John compounded that because he, he had a hundred uh, brass tubes, for instance. He was supposed to leave notes all the way along to say where he was going next. So instead of leaving a hundred notes, he left precisely one. And all it said was all well, and it wasn't. Tell us a little bit about Crozier. He is a really interesting character, and you don't realize that the brunt of the class prejudice these days, we don't see that as demonstrated in, in back then. So tell us a little bit about Crozier and some of the hurdles he faced to get where he was. Well, he had three strikes against him. The first was that he was born in Northern Ireland, so he wasn't really an Englishman, even though he was English. The second uh, was that he was Presbyterian, not Church of England, so that left him unfit for top command. That's why he didn't get an expedition of his own. But the third was, and the final strike was that he had gone to sea as a young man as a sailor before the mast as a regular sailor. And he worked his way up through the ranks through sheer skill and ability. And even though the Royal Navy did acknowledge the excellence of its best sailors, sort of like Patrick O'Brien shows with Jack Aubrey, uh, it didn't, wouldn't allow Crozier to be the head of an expedition. He wasn't a gentleman. And he was bitter. But he had personal reasons to be bitter, too. On the day they sailed, in May of 1845, with hundreds, thousands of people on the docks waving goodbye and bands playing and confetti and ladies with parasols twirling. Crozier was below decks on the terror drinking heavily. We know that. That's historical. He was bitter. He had proposed a year and a half earlier to Sir John Franklin's wife's niece. It was Franklin's second wife, so Lady Jane's niece, Sophia Craycroft, and Sophia, I think, let on Crozier. Here's this man in his mid-40s in love for his first time, and he worked up nerve to propose to her, and she, she just laughed at him. And she said she'd rather marry his boss at the time, James Ross. They were coming back from uh, Antarctica when he proposed. They were in Tasmania. And he said, well, no, Sir James is going home to be married, a beautiful young Scottish girl waiting for him. And she said, I don't care. I'd rather wait for the marriage to fail than marry you, a mere commoner. Wow, so that whole plot, was that was all real? That, that was real. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the fantastic things about this book. You do a great job of, of mingling the clearly imagined and the not-so-clearly imagined. Tell us a little bit about creating this world of, of the Ar Arctic in 1840s. It's completely foreign to us in a number of ways. Tell us how you go about doing that. The first thing to do is to enter into what amounts to another planet because the Arctic then, uh, you get to it in a few weeks of sailing, but once you were there, you may have been there for years. Uh, many of the expeditions were frozen in for two or three winters, and those winters are five to six months of darkness. 
And we're used to that. We watch TV. We see all these images. You can turn on your cable satellite channels any night and find something about the Arctic and global warming and the poor polar bears. We're so used to the images. But only a few people in the world had seen them in those days. And the difference is that they were out of touch for three years, and they were expected to be out of touch. There's nothing in our life like that today. If we launched a two nuclear-powered spacecraft to Mars with 126 crew and so forth, they'd be in touch every day. It'd be like the space station now. They email home all the time. They're in constant touch. These men were used to being out of touch with home and land for months on end, sometimes years on end. So that crushing isolation, and crushing is a literal term with the ice always encroaching, they must have been in those ships listening to the grinding and the, and the popping and snapping, just the bolts exploding from the cold at 40 and 80 and 100 degrees below zero in the ships. Uh, sounded like cannon fire at times. It was muskets going off inside their ships from the, the metal contracting and then things actually exploding, shooting around. But the ice grinding against the hull constantly, the four months of darkness, to me that's a different world. How do you create this in, in language? What, how do you choose your language to, to take the reader into this other world? You have some really neat stuff. The, the structure of the terror is very complicated and, and, and crispy and, and interesting. It keeps you reading. So tell us a little bit about some of the literary devices you use to build this historical world. Well, one simple. You simply uh, read enough that you get a sense of, of what they're seeing, what they're feeling, um, what the fact of living in that, especially when their heat gave out, which was fairly early on after the second part in, way into the second winter, they couldn't circulate the hot water anymore, so below decks just had little stoves, and it got colder and colder, and you can't go on deck to relieve yourself. You can't go up to the head you know, on deck, so they're just buckets everywhere, but that freezes instantly, the ice hanging everywhere. You just have to begin to see it yourself and then choose the proper language. But the trick is also to put yourself not in a modern perspective, but in their perspective, because to a certain extent, some of these men were used to it. There weren't many polar explorers there. Crozier and a few others were the only one with experience, because once men went into the Arctic or Antarctic, they didn't sign up to go again. <laughs> only a few fanatics kept going back, and Crozier was one of those. He'd spent 18 years up there or down there in the ice. But the, um, the darkness and the, and the cold and what happens to the ship, what happens to your body... What happens um, when, you're, when you're standing outside on watch with 40, 50 below and you're standing, your breath turns into ice crystals. And even the starlight can prism on that. You can have a rainbow of ice crystals hanging around your body. It just hangs there. They had a, a staged a prize fight in one of the actual expeditions I was reading about, and they went out on the ice. It was about 50 below, and they had these men fighting. But the breath of their fog became so thick that they couldn't see each other. They had to call the fight. Once you get a few details like that, the others begin to click into place. You introduce a, a, an interesting gallery of characters, and you introduce them using different uh, literary devices. You have some stuff that's told from third-person omniscient, and then you have some um, journal entries. Did you find any of these journals, or, or were, were any of the journal entries actual? No. Um, the journal I put in the book is kept by... A, character I found fascinating. We know he did the autopsies on the three bodies that were dug up on Beachy Island in the 1980s and actually autopsied. But uh, Dr. Harry D.S. Goodsir, a young anatomist, had originally done the autopsies in 1846 when those men died to see why they died. We can tell because he had a certain type of upside-down Y 
uh, the opposite way you generally open a cadaver, and that's the way Good Sir did it. But he was an idealistic young doctor, and his journal is completely fictional. I did base it on some letters that I read, his style based on letters I read to his brother, but no logbook, no journal. I, I, should, I shouldn't say no journal. One journal was found, but it's as if it were in code. It makes no sense, and it's in fragments. Oh, this is Pegler's journal? Yes, Pegler's journal was real. Wow. But, and it's written backwards, and it, it just has a few terror camp, awful, can't, that sort of thing. It's uh, very strange. It must have been right near the end when he wasn't even thinking straight. But that was real. But other than that, the logbooks and all the things you normally find, amazingly enough, you know, some expedition disappears, like Robert Scott, uh, Falcon Scott, we found his diaries and his last letters home and everything. It was in the tent frozen with him when they found the bodies. But nothing like that's ever been turned up except this strange coded thing from Pegler. So I had to make up uh, Dr. Goodsir's journal. When you're putting this novel, when you're putting this novel together, you slice up time in- interestingly to keep the the reader really involved. And I'm wondering how you, as a as a writer, when you're laying this out, did you work out each individual line? I mean, I can see this as a on the wall as a big map with overlapping timelines and stories. Did, is that how you did it, or does it was it written just pure stream of consciousness? Uh, uh, neither, really. It's just after 24 books, about 19 of them novels, you instinctively have a sense of the true line. It's a bit like a mountain climber facing a, a steep climb like the Eiger or something. And you can see the there are only a few routes, you know, and you try to choose the most interesting one. Or it's like a chess player, the really good chess players. They don't see 100 or 1,000 combinations like a computer would. They just see two or three of the best ones. And it sounds like bragging, but, I mean, I've, I've written 24 books, and I realized with this, you're going to. This needed to start three years into their expedition, already frozen in the ice, already facing, you know, run, the food running out, ready to freeze to death. It had to start at the worst point, and then the structure dictated itself to me of how to go back and catch up on things. And so it was an intricate structure, but an obvious one to me. Wow, <laughs> that's really amazing. One other thing, when I read this, I really felt like I was enveloped in a grand American adventure novel. And, and it's it just really has that big feel for it. There's lots of details. There's lots of really neat action. Um, and yet all the characters are British. And I know you preserve all that detail, and you know all the way it's British. But tell us, I'm wondering how you as a writer maybe feel about creating an American adventure novel. It's really a, a big slice of, of fantastic writing. Well, thank you. Uh, and there is an American sense to it. But we sort of traded places with the British, haven't we? We're we're now the imperial power that dominates the earth and thinks we can do anything we want, and we're the ones with the technology that gives us the hubris to think that we can set up bases on the moon and travel to Mars if we ever decide to pay for it. Um, we've been uh, wrapped on the nose a few times by both political uh, realities and nature recently, uh, so that hubris is not... Uh, is not complete anymore, but it is pretty great. So in a sense, it is a great American adventure novel because we're the ones with that mindset now. Maybe Britain has been wrapped on the nose so heavily for so long they've completely lost that sense of can do anything. You know, it's like Eddie Izzard talks about there, the British moon program consists of a very tall ladder. (laughs) When you read this novel, um, one of the things that I really liked was that you do have a, a sense of there's a, a bit of the fantastic that creeps in here. And part of it's just because of the perceptions of the characters. 
this was like the first time anybody had seen a polar bear. And a polar bear is a really frightening monster, isn't it? Yes, it is. But they got used to the polar bears fairly quickly. They'd shoot them. They learned quickly that you can't eat a polar bear's liver for whatever reason. It'll make you very sick. Um, Dogs will chase polar bears away, oddly enough. Uh, But the polar bear, the more research I did on it, the less uh, interested I was in spending time in the Arctic. You know, we're so used to them as cartoon characters and cuddly. Oh, save the polar bear. They're so cute. And we go to the zoo and watch them swim. And they are the most ferocious predator on planet Earth. They are the only predator on planet Earth that regularly eats human beings still. They consider us either irrelevant or food. There's no in-between. When you, uh, you also go beyond the polar bear, if, if we may discuss this briefly. I don't want to give away too much of, of this book. Go right ahead. Okay. <laughs> there, there's something else out there. And, and this novel begins with a, with a thank you to Kenneth Toby. Keith Toby, is it? Uh, Ken Toby. Ken Toby and the people who made the original version of The Thing from Another Planet. Right, 1951, uh, produced by Howard Hawks, and some say that he directed parts of it too. It's a movie that I love, and I love the idea of something trying to get at you when you're in the Arctic. Where you, The problem with haunted house stories to me and most stories that try to scare you today is leave the house. You know, It's a simple solution. Just get out of there. Go away. But when it's 120 below outside with the winds howling and six months of darkness and near the North Pole as it was in the original movie of The Thing, uh, you can't just run away. You can't leave the house. And I just love that movie. It, it helped form my sensibilities. The remake was okay, but wasn't my cup of tea. Let's talk a little bit about the character you call Lady Silence. This is an Eskimo and who, woman who joins the expedition and... Some of the men think of her to be a witch. Well, she does witch-like things. First of all, she appeared at the same time the thing on the ice did. Uh, She appeared with an Eskimo male whom they promptly shot. Of course, you see two big furry shapes coming out of uh, the fog when the thing's been preying on you. You're going to shoot at them, and they killed the man. And she can't talk to them because her tongue looks like it had been chewed out years before. She's a very young woman, still probably a teenager. But she has no tongue, so the men call her Lady Silence. And uh, the, they tolerate her, but they're, they're not sure if she's a Jonah, but they do think she's a witch. And she does tend to appear and disappear. She leaves the ship. They find a way later how she's tunneled out in the ice and has been living out on the ice. And they can't imagine how anybody could stay alive up there on her own. And uh, it turns out she does have some shamanistic qualities as the story goes along. One thing that drives this novel and makes it really interesting and exciting is you use, as a literary device, you use set pieces. There are some incredible set pieces in here. And I want, want to ask you, um, there's one that involves uh, Mr. Blanky and another one that's based on an Edgar Allan Poe story, To Die For. Tell me a little bit about when you decide to create the set piece um, does it do you, do you kind of lift it out of the novel or and have to work it out in itself? I mean, the blanky scene and and the the other scene both seem they're very very carefully constructed so the reader can see everything and understand everything. I'm wondering if you yourself are building models or how how you're driving it to make sure that the reader can be there. It's a good question because you're getting right down to the basic writerly process, and I can't speak for other writers, but to me. There's a film running in my head. And the big question is, how much of that film do I narrate 
to somebody who's not watching the same film so they can see him, you know, parts of it. And in the set pieces you're talking about, it comes down to almost a second-by-second narration of the movie I'm seeing in my head. Whereas in other pieces, you can do some fancy editing and jump cutting and a montage or whatever. But in the blanky scene you're talking about, it's the thing on the ice is actually chasing one of the crewmen. And it is a rather long second-by-second, minute-by-minute description. And that can be risky because the reader doesn't want to spend too much time on one thing. But there had to be one example of how somebody uh, tried to get away from this thing, and in this case actually did, and you never get a clear view of what's chasing him. But you want to feel like poor Blanky did up there in the darkness and the ice, first climbing into the rigging, then swinging out and dropping to the ice, and then running for his life with something loping after him. So that is intense writing, but I don't do any models or anything. The Edgar Allan Poe thing you mentioned, I love that because third winter in the ice, the men ask if they can put on a Venetian carnival. It was a bit of a custom. and uh, Was this a real custom? Yes. Captain oh. Crozier, even the costumes are accurate. Cap- oh, really? Yeah. Crozier had done this as a young midshipman, um, frozen in his second winter in the ice. He'd done it with uh, Edward Hopner's expedition and Perry, P-A-R-R-Y. And Perry really wanted to be an actor more than anything else. He was a captain of an expedition to the North Pole, but he brought on all these trunks of wild masks and clothing and so forth. Really? <laughs> yes. He, he dressed as, I don't know, an Arabian princess. Here's the captain of the, you know, the head of the expedition dressed as a princess. I believe young midshipman Crozier at the time was a Nubian uh, slave holding the train of one of the princesses. And the, the men just love that sort of thing. All through Arctic exploration and Antarctic uh, exploration logs, this is the way they amuse themselves. And if you read Shackleton and so forth, or Scott, they were always putting on shows. You know, and they loved, uh, for some reason, the Brits just loved dressing up as women, and they always got a laugh. But these men, in my novel, they set it out on the ice with almost 100 below zero on New Year's Eve. And one of the men on HMS Erebus, before... He had joined the expedition, had been in Boston for a while living with his cousin, and he'd read a short story in a magazine by some American chap named Edgar Allan Poe, and it did indeed appear at that time, and he loved The Mask of the Red Death. So they recreate on the ice using sails and rigging, and these master riggers go up on this 180-foot-tall iceberg and set up all these lines holding up sails, which they dye all the colors of the uh, various rooms, the blue room, the white room, the violet room, and the ebony room, just as in The Mask of the Red Death. And so this is their uh, Venetian carnival out on the ice at night with the torches, you know, lighting these different colored rooms, and they're having a good time until an unwanted guest shows up. As a as a setting, the, the polar setting is an, is an interesting world, especially at this time, because it, it, it's fantastic. To, to the people who are there, it's fantastic. And it's even fantastic to us, even though we can look at this stuff with Google Satellite. You can't recreate with Google Satellite the feeling of being down there on the cold and looking up and seeing the auroras. And you describe the auroras in, in a really beautiful fashion, as, as we heard in the reading. Um, tell us a little bit about creating that polar world and, and the cold. You have a thing about the cold. You know this, right? <laughs> the last time you toured, it was with A Winter Haunting. Uh-huh. It was cold, and you're out there with a book about a guy who's snowed in. So now here we are again, and we're talking about it's not just one people. It's 126 people. <laughs> Be fair. I've also written a novel about Hawaii. No, that's true. Tell us a little bit about the cold and, and the polar setting, creating that world. 
It's a little bit like living on the moon if it had air. I mean, we're talking about so cold that um, if you have metal objects up there, of course, if you touch them without gloves on or mittens, you freeze to it. Um, we're, um, we're also worried about global warming, but the polar extremes have to be experienced, I think, to be understood. And I haven't been to the poles, but I do have a cabin at 8,400 feet in the Rockies, and I've done uh, quite a bit of camping above tree line, 11,000, 12,000 feet, and so forth. And when you do that in the winter, you are literally in the tundra. You're in the Arctic. The uh, flora and fauna up there, with the exception of polar bears, are about the same. You know, ptarmigan that change color, that become the birds become white in the winter, and so forth. The uh, the plants are very are Arctic tundra plants, but the wind and the cold become such an element that after a while, you think about it all the time. You know, you you sleep with your boots in your sleeping bag, but as you're trying to lace up in the morning, uh, your boot laces snap. So it becomes a constant part of your life, and of course it was for these polar explorers, and they were very poorly equipped for it. They were wearing cotton and wool. And it just absorbed their sweat until the clothing they were wearing weighed, weighed 60 to 100 pounds. When you, one of the fun things that you have, uh, Captain Crozier reads from the Book of Leviathan. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about creating the Book of Leviathan. Well, I didn't have to create it. Um, you didn't? Uh, no, it's by Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes is famous for um, the Book of Leviathan. He was a wonderful philosopher, and he's famous perhaps for one phrase he made up, which is, life is nasty, poor, brutish, and short. And when the men on the Erebus and Terror, when Crozier takes over after the death of Franklin in my novel, um, Sir John was a teetotaler and a muscular Christian and held divine service twice a week, and was pretty good, supposedly, with his sermons. Uh, and the men like divine service, usually. They don't, they don't mind sitting through it. They like singing and so forth. I should say standing through it. But Crozier used to read ship's articles. He didn't care much for divine service. He's a very cynical man in my novel, um, not only embittered, but he'd read the ship's articles. You know, if you commit sodomy with another crewmate or with any of the ship's livestock, you will be put to death. That was his idea of divine service. But when the men were desperate, when they were terrified of this strange thing on the ice that's taking them one and two at a time and leaving body parts in artistic ways and some malevolence that's out there, they're sure it's the devil. So he brings out Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan and starts reading it during divine service. And Hobbes not only thought that life was nasty, poor, brutish, and short, but he points out that men are always creating their superstitions and their desires, turning them into gods and demons and bugbears and devils. And so when Captain Crozier reads from this, the men become sure that it's a book of the Bible. They uh, Only a couple of them know the Bible so well that they they're, they're, there's, I tell you, there's no friggin' book of Leviathan in the Bible, but he, the others are sure that it's in the Bible, and they love it so much that when they have to drag their huge ship's boats hundreds of miles across the ice, the final exertion, that certainly kill them, they rename the boats they were dragging as nasty, poor, brutish, and short. This book has a, a sense of evil in it. There's a lot of different forms, and for Mr. Hickey is, of course, one of the the exemplars uh, of this evil, and he he's gay, and and so I, I'm wondering if you felt as a, as a writer if you felt a, li a little bit worried about making this be the case. Yes and no. Um, if you create a stereotypical character of any sort, you know you should be very worried. I don't think Hickey was a stereotype of gay or anything else. <laughs> he was 
I figured in a, in a group of 126 men, you're going to have a hickey. And I chose a name at random. I'm sure Cornelius Hickey, the caulker's mate, in real life, he was on the muster on the ship. I'm sure he was a fine man. I'm sure he, you know, he went down trying to save the others just like everybody else did, unless he was one of the cannibals, but we won't get into that. However, he became my villain of choice, mostly because of the name. Because in any group of 126 men, you're going to have a sea lawyer. You're going to have, uh, you know, the Fred McMurray character from um, the Cain Mutiny, who's always helping others be unhappy and want a mutiny. You're going to have somebody who manipulates others. And this Hickey character has the giant, the idiot, retarded giant, Magnus Manson, and he brings him under his Hickey's power so he can use Manson as his enforcer. And so Hickey simply uses sex. And obviously if you're frozen in the dark ice for three years, there's going to be sex. He uses that as a tool. But as far as relationships went, there was a more interesting gay couple, although they hadn't been a couple for some years. The old... Um, Purser's mate, John Bridgens. Bridgens and Peglar. Yes, Harry Pegler. Pegler was a, a main mass captain. He was one of the most respected men on the ship. You know, he worked in the upper spars. And uh, Bridgens was the one scholar, the one truly well-read, intelligent man. And for purposes of my novel, I had them travel around the world with Charles Darwin years earlier. And that's when they had fallen in love and had a relationship. And Bridgens was also the mentor for Harry Pegler. And I would have written. I could have written a whole book about those two. I really liked them, and they had small role, but I, I enjoyed every chapter I wrote about them. You mentioned cannibalism, and one of the things that's interesting about uh, historical research these days is it, it's subject now to scientific forensic uh, technology, and um, we can look at some of these bones and and tell that. Boy, that that person didn't die natural. Those are knife marks on there. Uh, how much do we know about the cannibalism that happened in this? Not as much as we think we do, is my opinion. There's one female Canadian forensic expert who's always quoted on the various documentaries, the PBS Nova documentary and so forth, and we know that those skeletons were cut up. But a lot of it doesn't make sense. And when I, the more I looked at the data, the less sure I was that uh, the British ate each other. There's one skeleton, for instance, that she uses to show that they, you know, cut the wrists off here. And, and when, you, when you scrape down to the bone, you leave very telltale marks. And you can tell steel blades from stone blades and so forth. And those forensic, that forensic evidence is there. But one of the skeletons isn't one of the crew members. It's a, it's a young, it's a boy, about 14. And there was no boy on the crew. And yet she used that as an example of the cannibalism. We also can't say who did that cutting and scraping and chopping. And to say they had to be the British because there were steel weapons used um, and instruments is not accurate because the, uh, for, I'm not saying the Eskimos were cannibals, but they used everything they found. They, they, we know the local Inuit opened up all of the graves and scattered the bones, for instance, and they would take anything out that they could use. So we just don't know what happened in the end. And uh, I sort of agree with Charles Dickens, who was outraged when the British just couldn't accept cannibalism. My guess is probably there, there were groups there that resorted to it of the sailors. But uh, the evidence is murky, and Dickens just went to his grave refusing to believe that British sailors ate each other. One thing that you do regularly with all of your fiction is incorporate literary influences, um, particularly with your science fiction. And I'd like to talk to you um, because about your science fiction. Your last two books were just this incredibly big and baroque 
dense and beautiful uh, duet, uh, Ilium and Olympos, based on the Iliad and myriad other literary influences. Uh, could you tell, compare and contrast to us the process of creating that's these books are set in a post singularity far future when humanity is almost irrelevant and the we our creations have long surpassed us could you describe to us the difference uh, or in the similarities between building the world of the far future and building the world of the terror well they have some very common elements i think any novelist builds a world i mean when when we read somebody like faulkner his county, and I can't pronounce it, you know, Yachtapanafa, whatever it is, his county down there is a fictional place, and we know he based it on places and people and weird families he knew, but it becomes an extraordinary reality unto itself, doesn't it? So, so many novelists do that. They create a place that is such great interest to us that we go to look at it even though it doesn't exist. If you're in London, you want to visit 221B Baker Street, and you know that no one, you know, no one named Holmes lived there, but it's still of great interest to us. So building a world in science fiction, to me, is an expansive thing. You find an entry point, and it grows wider and wider and wider, because you have to be constantly thinking of the parts of the iceberg. Sorry to mix the metaphors here, but the parts of the iceberg the reader won't see that help support the pinnacle, the little tip they do see. So the aspects of culture, language, history, technology that you're not going to mention, you have to know something about. You have to think about it yourself so that when the characters experience some aspect of it, they're familiar with it, and the reader gets a sense of it. Simply, just like in real life, there's so many things that we don't know specifics about. It's just part of our life. You know, we don't know how a Safeway grocery store door opens automatically, but it does. In a historical novel like this, it's interesting because it's sort of the reverse. You build the world by getting tighter and tighter and tighter. You move in and you look with greater and greater care at, at the smaller things, the small details of life they take for example. They take for, uh, they're used to, that we don't, we're not familiar with. Just like somebody traveling back 150 years to our time would be amused that we have computers with keyboards, for heaven's sake, you know, and just marvel at the things. But we use them every day. So by focusing on the small things in historical fiction, I find it brings a larger world alive to me. Where you've also, as I mentioned, you tend to incorporate actual literary influences. Uh, Hyperion, your famous novel in the 1980s, was based on the Canterbury Tales or, or, or rift off of that. Keats, um, we have the, the Iliad for your last two science fiction novels. I wonder if you care to talk about um, the way that I think there's a sort of uh, almost a, a quantum entanglement that hmm. occurs with, with fiction, between literary fiction, and between all fiction. And, and I wonder if you care to talk about that kind of the way that uh, one work informs another. That's an interesting question. I like the curmudgeon critic Harold Bloom, and uh, he's criticized a lot for turning Shakespeare into a minor god, for instance. I don't care. And to me, Shakespeare is a minor god. So, But Bloom has a theory, as a literary critic, he has a very interesting theory called the anxiety of influence. And his premise is it's almost Freudian, you know, just like uh, Freud understood every young male is really competing with his father and wants to destroy and maybe eat his father. Uh, Bloom feels that when anyone seriously enters into literary dialogue, a poet, say, or a novelist, you, there is one, probably one, 
previous writer or very few that you go in a wrestling match with. Or Hemingway always wrote about he he was in boxing matches. He'd write letters to friends. He's working on such and such a novel, and he'd say, I went three rounds with Tolstoy, you know, this morning. Then I didn't put him on the deck, but I held my own. So he was constantly seeing it that way. And I think there is an entanglement, just as you say. And that's interesting, because quantum theory shows that particles so far apart in space have this, uh, what Einstein hated it, he called it spooky action at a distance. He made fun of it. But it exists. They've actually teleported these particles because they're entangled, even though they're light years apart. We have done teleportation scientifically with these uh, tiny little quantum particles because they're entangled by some connection that we still don't understand, even though they're absolutely separated in time and space. And this is true, I think, of the great literary works. When, when a new poet bursts on the scene and has an original voice and is so powerful, say a Wallace Stevens, you will find the poet in the past that Stevens is probably subconsciously, maybe not deliberately, reacting to, sort of competing with, not just pulling ideas or cadences or techniques from that poet, but maybe wrestling with the same themes and finding a new way to do it. And I do it, I just enjoy doing it overtly, and science fiction is a wonderful way to drag in John Keats and Chaucer and Shakespeare and Hemingway and whoever I want. But in the, I have to say in the book, The Terror, I tried to keep it to just one mention of Edgar Allan Poe. I'm trying to uh, cut back. You've shied away from writing any more about Hyperion, and, but you have kept up your mystery series, Joe Kurtz, the Joe Kurtz novels. What is it about the mystery genre where you, where, that makes it okay for you to, to keep going back to Joe Kurtz? What brings you back to Joe Kurtz? Well, I won't be going back to Joe Kurtz. In fact, to, oh, really? to, to buy myself some time to write The Terror, I had to buy back, uh, you know, authors get a little payment on advance for books, and I owed one more book in that series. It would be the fourth and probably final Kurtz book, but I bought it back. I also bought a book back I owed my previous publisher. My accountant looked at my income that year and said, it's all negative. You're buying books. Is, is that a good career plan? <laughs> but it, it bought me time. Uh, but with mystery series, it's meant to be a series because, you know, we, that's why we love Holmes. That's why we love um, Spencer, the detective, and so forth. We like going back into that world year after year. But I don't like creating what I consider are complete tales. I wrote four books in the Hyperion universe, but they were two tales to me, Hyperion and the Fall of Hyperion, Endymion and the Rise of Endymion. Those are two tales, and I was done. And I could have spent the rest of my days quite comfortably, and I mean both in terms of income as well as ease, writing Hyperion novels, you know, like Frank Herbert's Dune books that they've created these prequels to. And I think that's death of something. I'm not sure what. Not just death of something in the writer where you just keep going back to the same thing, but some death in the contract between a writer and reader. That you're always going to be trying something new to stretch yourself and to challenge yourself as a writer I think when the reader gets too comfortable going back to the world, I think both reader and author are, are both missing something. Well, nobody can possibly get comfortable with you, Dan. No, thank you very much. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> we never know what Dan Simmons is going to do next, and that's what makes your books such a joy. We might pick up a, a wild post-singularity science fiction novel, or we might pick up a 700 pages of Arctic exploration, all of Jack London. Well, it's not a good career plan, I should tell any beginning writers out there. Uh, it's because you have a group of separate readerships that way. And the way to, career-wise, the way to have a, a rich life is to get one readership and keep working with them until it gets very large. You know, an Elborn Leonard type thing. 
Leonard used to write all sorts of types of books, but once he settled into the crime mode, not doing westerns and other things, um, sooner or later, that readership's going to explode into bestseller status. But uh, my readerships, you know, tended to be separate and uh, not to cross over too much. The nice thing about this book, The Terror, is that at least it is finding a new readership. There are a lot of people who've never read before coming to read this book. You're known as a science fiction writer, and one thing that interests me about science fiction is when when we uh, science fiction generally often takes place in the future, and there's this kind of natural um, tendency for people who don't read a lot of science fiction, or even people who do, to think that therefore science fiction writers are in some sense trying to predict the future, and. To my mind, most science fiction writers aren't trying to predict the future. They're just talking about the present because change is happening so fast that we don't even know what's happening now. Exactly. Yeah, I, I have a little message that I put on my website at dansimmons.com, and the one I did for January was how putrid we are as speculative fiction writers and speculating about the future. We really predicted nothing important about the future we're living in now. You know, it was all spaceships and and lunar bases and so forth. It was the late 80s before we started really thinking about cyberspace. And it is true that SF writers did coin that phrase and gave us the idea that the Internet is a place we'll go to. But we're just awful in talking about any real future. Any idea that science fiction writers can predict the future is insane. What we do is look at trends in societies and that we're living in. And sometimes in our speculation, whether it's 19, the book 1984 or Brave New World, uh, we are able to warn people around us of certain trends that are unhealthy. In that sense, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut who said, we're like the um, canaries that the miners used to carry in a cage on a pole ahead of them in a mine that has noxious gases. When the, when the uh, canaries fall off their perch and go belly up, you know, something's wrong with the air. And that's the purpose we science fiction writers provide. Well, in that regard, too, when I was reading this book, even though it's set, you know, it's set in 1848, 45, 48, and it's set in the Arctic, and the Arctic is very much the Arctic. It, one of the interesting experiences I had is I felt, wow, I mean, it, you can't help but read this book and not think about global warming. You see these guys trapped in the ice, and you realize that a lot of that ice may be gone now. Yes, and actually um, there is something about global warming in this book set in the 1840s. Obviously it wasn't happening yet, although England and the other industrial European countries were all, including the United States, were already pouring out the CO2 from their new factories and proud of it. But it's tied in with Inuit mythology. And that was tricky because I don't have an Eskimo point of view in the book, but it was woven through the entire book. And it shows when you treat your environment with a certain amount of disregard the environment will fight back. So that's in there. You, on your website, talk a little bit about the, the future of publishing. And there's been a lot of speculations about this. And I find books interesting because this is a technology that's, what, 400 years old? You know, you, nobody's done much better in 400 years. So it's interesting to think about them as a form of technology. And, you know, there's always somebody saying, well, the web's going to, you know, this is going to outmode this. This is going to outmode that. Tell us some of your thoughts on the future of publishing. And is this technology over? Is our books over? Yes, books are finished. Uh, <laughs> I urge people, don't buy my book because it's an obsolete technology. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Luddite here. I'm, I'm rather proud. I'm like Lord Byron sometimes, I think, because I'm rather proud of the Luddites. You know, the word sabotage comes from uh, 
the Dutch people throwing their wooden shoes, their sabots, into the machines that were going to take their jobs. And the Luddites rose up because they knew it would destroy their entire lifestyle in the small villages. It would destroy their economy and their life. And I think technology... They were right. <laughs> yeah, they were right. They were absolutely right. And they had a, you know, they put up a game fight, but they it was lost before they started. And that's true with most things in technology. Nobody asks our opinion about technological change. They just give it to us. And usually we go, oh, cool, you know, I have to have that high-definition TV. I was an early adapter of HD. It changes the way you view television. But they don't ask our opinion. But there are things called plateau technologies where you just get a technology like the telephone for the first century was a plateau technology. It did what it did, and that was it. And now it's mushrooming and all. You know, we, have, we buy phones, and they have all these different capabilities, and it's evolving quickly. But I like plateau technologies because they remind me of life forms like sharks, that they got it right and they stayed the way it was. And to me, a book is like a shark. It evolved to a point. I looked at the new Sony Reader, for instance. Shouldn't name a brand name, but it's the best reader I've seen for the new technology. You can load whatever 50 books in it and so forth. But it uh, it has so many drawbacks compared to this book I'm looking, this physical book I'm looking at in front of me. And one thing about books is that as much trouble as they are to move when you move houses, they are something you want to keep. And you look at your books on a shelf, and they're part of your life. And you can always pull down that book. So I think the technology will keep changing and will be adapt it and use it. But I would be very surprised if 100 years from now, books weren't still books. When you talk, you mentioned somebody earlier. Um, you mentioned a name earlier, and I think that's a, a name that's in your, from our past that's in your future, Charles Dickens. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm, I didn't care too much for Hemingway when I started researching a book about Hemingway. I thought he was a bully, so I figured I'd spend a few years researching him, write a big book about him. I've always had trouble reading Charles Dickens, his sentimentality, his uh, names of his characters. So I decided to write a book about Dickens, and I haven't... Be, well, I have written one chapter of it, but I've, I'm doing a lot of research, and it's about Dickens' last five years, which were very strange. What 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 did he do in his last five years? Well, in uh, June of 1865, he was in a terrible train wreck. He was coming back from France, and he got on the tidal train to London, and they were working on the rails on a uh, trestle over a riverbed, and they pulled the rails out, but they hadn't put the flagman far enough up the uh, the train tracks, and they'd misread the uh, timetable anyway and didn't expect the train. And so the train went flying off, and most of the cars crashed into the ravine below, killing people and hurting many more people. And Dickens and his mistress, or at least his romantic liaison, Ellen Turnin, the actress, and her mother were the only ones in one car. And Dickens got them out of the dangly car hanging over this drop, and then he went down to take care of the dead and dying. Wow. This is like a Stephen Seagal movie. <laughs> Isn't it? It starts with a bang. <laughs> but it changed him. Uh, here's a man who had been obsessed with death and corruption and so forth. Whenever he went to Paris, he went to visit the morgue. He, he had a fascination with dead bodies. And uh, they certainly show up in his books. But he was an optimistic writer, a sentimental writer. You know, Even when he killed off little Nell, it was filled with sentiment and love. But after this train wreck... He came out with no injuries, but he came out unable to speak, for instance, for a day or two. And then when he started speaking, it was in somebody else's voice. And uh, that's what he said to a friend. I seem to have come out of this with someone else's voice. 
and his interests changed. He quit writing, and he began doing lectures, reading from his writings, but only murder scenes is what he was interested in, Bill Sykes killing Nancy. And he became more and more anxious. He couldn't stay in a town after he gave these readings. He'd have to get out. He was telling friends he was guilty of murder. And the readings were so horrendous when you read the original news clippings. It says uh, women fainted and screamed and, and men turned pale and shook and had trouble staying there. He was not just reading from his book. He was rewriting his book and acting out these murders. And then he started disappearing into the London night. He became very interested in serial killers. And he'd go out at night and come back in the morning, and no one was quite sure what these nocturnal adventures were about. But he, he was had a preoccupation with things like, could you dissolve a body completely in a lime pit? Or would there be teeth and spectacles that you would have to throw into the Thames? So I think there may be a book there. <laughs> Sounds like it to me. Well, we'll look forward to it. We've been speaking with Dan Simmons. His new novel is The Terror. Thanks for speaking with me, Dan. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.